The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to The Steady Investor with Mark Vickery and Mitch Zacks. In our program today, we'll help you get started or continue to build your nest egg with some of the best practices for retirement planning. It's time to start right now. Here are your hosts, Mitch Zacks and Mark Vickery. Welcome once again, listeners of Voice America's Business Channel. This is The Steady Investor, sponsored by Zacks Investment Management. I'm your co-host, Mark Vickery, joined today by the other co-host of The Steady Investor, Mitch Zacks, who is Portfolio Manager and Founding Principal at Zacks Investment Management. Good morning, Mitch. Nice day. Good morning, Mark. It's a pleasure to have you. I, I know you're off the uh, Zach's Investment Research. You did the morning call this morning, so it's very nice to have yeah, you Yeah, that's right. The ahead of Wall Street uh, piece. That's right. So uh, I, I come in with things fairly uh, in mind. And that's what we like to talk about in the uh, early parts of the study, Investor, is what's trending in the markets right now, such as uh, jobless, came, jobless claims came out this morning. Uh, another very good read. Uh, we're looking at continuing claims that are uh, within a reasonable uh, uh, range as well. Non-farm payroll came out last week. That was good. Uh, so jobless uh, jobs numbers, nothing to see here. We're, we're good, right? Well, it, again, as I've said several times before, if you analyze uh, GDP growth or unemployment over long periods of time versus returns of the stock market, there's not a lot of predictive ability uh, in terms of GDP growth. The issue is not uh, whether GDP growth is high or low, or whether the jobless number is high or low, it really is how it does relative to expectations. So what's important here is that the jobless numbers are lower, the the new jobs numbers are better than what analysts were expecting. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it ties very nicely to the strength you saw in uh, Walmart's earnings. So that as people have more jobs, they're going to be spending more time at Walmart, they're going to be spending more time at retailers. Uh, so you're seeing a uh, a recovery in the U.S. continue to materialize, and I would continue to expect uh, interest rates to start to rise uh, in the U.S. and uh, economic recovery to occur with earnings growth uh, starting to rematerialize. Oh, very good. Um, yeah, actually, Walmart did uh, post Q2 numbers this morning. Very good numbers, in fact. Uh, the, the stock was up three percent in the early morning uh, when I was uh, uh, tracking it. Uh, so. Target also, I mean, they had issues, but they beat estimates as well. Right. That was yesterday morning. Right. Um, so the demise of big box retail has been greatly exaggerated. Is that well, correct? I, I don't, th- I mean, I think that there's an issue with the retailer that has to do with technology. If you think of it this way, uh, if you think of a store clerk, you might have a clerk in a uh, at Macy's and they're very, very good at helping people find the item they they want and very, very good at subtly getting people to potentially spend more money. Now you go to Amazon and what essentially is happening is instead of having thousands of store clerks, there's one algorithm that's optimized. But once that algorithm is optimized to maximize sales and referral items and things of that sort and upsell uh, techniques, uh, that can be uh, easily recreated thousands, millions of times. 
So what happens is the rise of automation allows uh, for the centralized internet retailer to start to really compete with the big box retailer where they can provide better goods, they can provide better feedback on the goods and they can provide the goods at lower prices and whoever does that best is going to be the owner of the space. So we, we own Amazon in our portfolio in our focus growth strategy. We own Walmart uh, in our large cap value strategy. I think both of them are going to be uh, beneficiaries of this because there's going to be a scale that occurs. Some of the smaller cap retailers though may come under uh, some degree of pressure uh, because they, they can't compete against a Walmart or an Amazon. Uh, they're too small and they're not able now to offer a select good that is now unavailable at either Walmart or Amazon where they were 15 or 20 years ago. So I think it's I think you're going to see the larger retailers continue to do well. You're going to see the Internet retailers continue to do well. And you could see some uh, downward pressure on some of the smaller uh smaller brick and mortar retailers. Right, right. Well, it is difficult to discuss retail these days without talking about Amazon. Uh, we saw also the other news from Walmart recently was that they bought uh, Jet.com, which I think was to yeah. kind of compete in more of that digital retail market that Amazon is, is doing very well in. Um, so you, you're saying that's another positive development that we're I, seeing. I, again, there's, there's, you can't now, you're not Amazon, you're not Walmart, you're a small uh, regional clothing uh, retailer. How are you going to start competing against this? Mm -hmm. So, so essentially, what is happening is there's a scale that's being developed. It's like a winner-take-all uh, economy due to technology, and whoever obtains the scale and obtains the technology is so far and above the competition. They're able to take all the uh, rents or all the all the business from the other companies, and I, I it, it's very clear it's developing across uh, the American economic landscape. Uh, the development's very, very positive for people who own stock. If you're an owner of these companies, if you own Amazon, if you own Walmart, you're in a very, very good space because there's these uh, modes being developed around these companies due to the technological change and the uh, inability of a smaller company to compete against them. Uh, if you're an employee, if, if you're looking for a job at a retailer, uh, you know, over the you know, during Christmas or during the holidays, it's going to be a much more difficult uh, place to, to be looking for. So again, what you're seeing is that the technological change is creating sort of a winner-take-all economy, which is benefiting corporate profit margins at the expense of uh, job growth, effectively. I mean, if you look at uh, GDP growth, it's, it's there, but if you look at GDP per capita, it's not growing where it should be. So again, uh, the U.S. is getting higher GDP growth than other countries, but it's having much, much higher population growth. And uh, if you look at the GDP growth per, per working person or per, per capita, uh, you're not seeing the strength in the U.S. Uh, that needs to be there. And again, it, it's because you, technology is changing the landscape. So a very, very few or smaller number of firms can do a tremendous amount of activity uh, without having to hire a large number of people. Right. We have seen sluggish growth, growth nonetheless, but very, very slow. Uh, how concerning is this to you uh, in the in the kind of the bigger view? It, it, it depends on whether you start to see the growth pick up. I mean, the, the advantage of this is that the slow growth is keeping inflation in check. It's keeping interest rates very low mm -hmm. and lower interest rates almost always trump uh, you know, higher earnings in terms of the equity markets. Okay. So the fact that you have these low interest, uh, low interest rate environment, and stocks are very, very cheap 
relative to fixed income instruments is what's pushing the market uh, higher. I mean, the, the long-term issue, though, is that you're seeing corporate America spending the majority of their cash on share buybacks instead of investing in uh, people or capital. And that will cause earnings per share to grow as they do the buyback. And in a low interest rate environment, it's a no-brainer. It's going to push stock prices higher. Again, all of this is very, very positive uh, for uh, owners of equities. And what I would expect to happen is if the trend continues, people are going to have to increase their equity exposure in order to benefit from these trends that are occurring, essentially. And, so, and, and the, the reason is because the, the, the labor income is going to start to come even more under pressure. But you, you, see you have a low inflation environment, a low interest rate environment. You have earnings that are recovering. Uh, all of this is very, very positive for the market and is causing stock prices to, to hit new highs. Uh, when the Federal Reserve starts to raise rates, which we would expect to happen uh, later this year, it's going to likely put a little bit of downward pressure on equities. But if you historically look at how equities perform in a rising interest rate environment, they tend to do very well because the Federal Reserve is raising rates uh, because they're expecting uh, the economy to, to continue to pick up. And this is where you're focused also for as a portfolio manager for yeah. Zach's investment management, focused on equities, focused on the, the, the larger the, Generally scale. speaking, over long periods of time, the best strategy an individual can employ is to try and have as large an equity exposure as they can and maintain it for a long as long a period of time. Right. You've and spoken about this before. Stay with the system. If you stay with equities for long periods of time, especially given where interest rates are currently and we're at the tail end of a 35-year bull market in bonds, equities are going to outperform bonds over the next 10 years. And if you can stay invested in equities, you're going to do relatively well. But during that period of time, you're going to have these pullbacks that occur. They occur very, uh, you know, they, they're, they're going to occur, you're going to have a correction once a year. And as you have that correction once a year, you just have to hold on and you ride it back up. And if you look back, you know, in my office, I have a large wall chart of the uh, S&P 500 since around 1946 or something of that sort. And the key issue is that at every point in time, these fluctuations seem very, very dramatic. But in taking the longer term picture, there's a general movement over time upward in the equity markets. And the people who get shaken out are the people who are shaken out because they're reacting to the movements. I've said this before, the equity markets, the stock market really is very, very small gains on a frequent basis with uh, very, very large losses. So your gains are not huge. You don't wake up one day and suddenly see the market under pressure and down five or 10 percent. Right. But that does happen to the downside. And that uh, that sort of dichotomy of having very, very small gains and very, very large losses causes people in aggregate to underweight equities hmm. and they focus on the day-to-day -day potential drop that can occur instead of the longer term return that equities can make and as a result I'm, I'm certain individuals are underweighted in equities right now institutions are underweighted in equities there was a big movement uh, to overweight hedge funds because they want to generate returns without risk and then the market went up and the hedge funds all lagged the market. Mm. Uh, so again, if you can simply invest in equities, stay invested in equities over long periods of time, you're going to do relatively well. 
in terms of your personal finances. Very good. This is The Steady Investor with Mitch Sachs, and I'm Mark Vickery. If you'd like to speak to Mitch Sachs, uh, you can call this number, and you'll get right patched right into the show, 866-472-5790. Read that again, 866-472-5790 uh, to talk to Mitch Sachs about, uh, well, anything you'd like, uh, as long as it's basically investment related. Uh, also, if you'd like to contact a representative at Zach's Investment Management, you can call 800-249-2934, 800-249-2934 to discuss managing your retirement assets. Uh, you can also get more information by emailing ZimInfo, Z-I-M for Zach's Investment Management, info at Zach's.com, Z-A-C-K-S.com. Also, uh, the website is ZimWealth.com. Okay, let's talk about some other things. We'll have the Fed minutes uh, yeah. from the last FOMC uh, meeting uh, recently. Uh, it kind of goes into what you were talking about, low interest rates. Um, there was some mentioned that it's creating these low interest rates or creating distortions in financial markets. Uh, how much of a concern is that to you? There, there is a concern uh, that the Federal Reserve is not going to raise rates high enough, quick enough, so that when another shock hits the economy, there's going to be no ability to cut rates. Right. Right now, I would not anticipate rates being uh, raised uh, prior to the election. I think there's political pressure on the Federal Reserve. I, I, I just don't see it happening. Uh, Yellen would rather have the economy run a little bit hotter than it should for a little bit longer to create more jobs uh, than be uh, quick to raise rates. So uh, I, I think that the Federal Reserve is going to raise rates. I think it's probably about maybe a 25 or 30 percent chance uh, they're going to do it this year, but I would anticipate that that chance materializes, and I would bet that they raise rates by the end of the year because I anticipate uh, earnings to start to pick up. You think more of a December meeting uh, yeah. rather than a September? Yeah, I, I don't think they're going to raise rates in September. Right, I guess that's uh, right. obviously before the, before before the election. election. They're, they're not going to step in front of that. Uh, they, they want, uh, I mean, the Federal Reserve wants to maintain its autonomy and they want the economy to be as strong as it can going into the election. But it hasn't raised since right. last December. Yeah, it's, so. it's, it's very strange. I mean, the, every time uh, they're thinking about raising, the market responds with uh, an issue. If it's Brexit, if it's a, a slowdown in China, uh, something of that sort, mm -hmm. and the Fed blinks. And uh, just from a common sense standpoint, there's a limit to how low interest rates can go uh, negative nominal rates in Europe aren't going to be maintained over long periods of time. Uh, but as a result of putting these interest rates so low, uh, equities are probably uh, the most attractive they've been relative to fixed income securities in quite some time. Right. If you're talking about the uh, dividend yield of the S&P 500, you're, you're looking at around 2%. So mm -hmm. if you purchase the stocks in the S&P 500, you get a 2% yield, cash on cash yield on your investment. If you buy all the uh, the ten-year treasuries out there, your your yields like 1.5 percent. So if you can think over a long period of time, uh, not a year, not five years, but let's say a, a ten years, uh, in one case you buy the treasuries and you hold them, what happens? You're guaranteed your 1.5 percent. Otherwise, and that's it. And that's it. If you buy uh, stocks and you hold them for ten years. Well, you're going to get two percent. You're going to get a higher dividend yield that's going to be returned to you, mm -hmm. and you have a very good chance, uh, a very very high likelihood that stock prices are going to be higher because the economy is going to be uh, larger, and the P multiples kind of probably going to be a little bit lower, but it's not going to be substantially lower. Okay. So, so over long periods of time, what the Fed is setting up is a uh, 
paucity, uh, a lack of demand uh, for uh, for riskless assets. It, it, it's very hard to look at the fixed income market now after 35 years of it going gangbusters and say now's the time to increase fixed income exposure. It's much more reasonable to say that, well, exactly what companies are doing, which is issuing debt to buy back stock, uh, an individual should be doing the same thing. They should be buying back stock and selling their debt effectively. Okay, very good. Now, after the Fed minutes were released yesterday, the stock market saw this as a very good sign. Do you put a lot of a value into a near-term surge based on something like that. The Fed comes out with something that the, the market reacts positively to, um, and that's a short-term thing. It's a it's a one-day pop. But is that something that we look at, or you tend to kind of like the point blend is, I mean, the reason together. the market rallied was because again, it's more information that indicates rates are going to stay lower for long. Right. If rates really stay like if the ten-year Treasury, if the five-year Treasury five years from now is 1.5 percent, mm-hmm. uh, the stock market's going to be substantially higher. Okay. So, so you, you're, you're, you're going to be in a situation where if the interest rate environment remains as low as it is, uh, the market is going to have to head higher because P multiples are going to have to expand even more. I anticipate that's not going to happen uh, because when I see uh, the two-year, the five-year, the 10-year treasury rates at all-time lows, when I see the Bank of England's uh, rates on their bonds, uh, for, for UK bonds, at the lowest it's ever been in the history of the country, uh, my belief is that it's likely going to stay there for a while, but you're also going to see it uh, start to tick upward. So that you, you can't go lower, much lower in terms of interest rates. It's rational to assume that you're going to see interest rates start to materialize and you're going to see inflation start to occur again effectively. Okay. And so... Once that begins, once the inflation once that begins, in, it's going to accelerate the movement out of bonds and into stocks. So even more, if it's better for equities, it, it, it's going to be better for equities relative to fixed income. Uh, but it could put some downward pressure in both equities and fixed income. There's a, there's a movement amongst a lot of large hedge funds uh, to be betting against uh, sort of all asset classes at this point in time uh, because they're concerned about uh, rising interest rates. And I think there's something to that. Uh, but I don't. I, I think they're overestimating the pullback that's going to occur if the economy stays healthy. So my anticipation is that because the recovery from the 08 crisis was so weak, you're going to see the recovery extended for a longer period of time. And so you're going to see GDP growth continue to materialize. You're going to see earnings growth continue to materialize. And the real issue facing the market is not the interest rate environment. It really is this concept of uh, technological change and how it's affecting uh, the economy and the labor force. Great. You're listening to The Steady Investor. We'll be right back after this break. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The Steady Investor Show is brought to you by Zach's Investment Management, a wealth management boutique formed over 23 years ago and manages several billions of dollars for thousands of customers. At Zach's, we believe acting in your best interest is our obligation. Zach's focuses on providing solutions and listening to our clients' needs. With trust in the financial industry at an all-time low, we find this focus to be a key differentiator for our firm. We're based in Chicago and have a team of advisor representatives located across the country to help you with your retirement planning. Whether you need help with financial planning 
or looking for a second opinion on your retirement plan, give us a call at 800-245-2934. Or to learn more, go to ZimWealth.com. Again, that number is 800-245-2934. Or go to ZimWealth.com. Fast performance is no guarantee of future results. Potential for loss exists in any investment. Material is for informational purposes only. It is not investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice. A recommendation to buy, sell, or hold a security. No advice is given about a strategy's suitability for a particular investor. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. listening to The Steady Investor. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to cgaitan at zax.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, listeners of Voice America's Business Channel. This is The Steady Investor, sponsored by Zax Investment Management. I'm Mark Vickery, joined by the co-host, Mitch Zacks, Portfolio Manager and Founding Principal at Zacks Investment Management. We've been talking about topical uh, things, Mitch, today, and um, I also wanted to bring up the volatility index, or the VIX. It's at multi-year lows, and it's been like that for weeks. Is, is this something, first of all, that you pay close attention to? I, I, I don't. It, the VIX really is for short-term option traders. What there generally tends to be is there tends to be mean reversion over time with the VIX. So when the VIX is very, very high, it means fear is uh, is very, very high. And the VIX looks at the implied volatility, like uh, based on option pricing of the S&P 500. So what is the what option traders are expecting uh, the S&P 500 to do in terms of its volatility or its standard deviation? Okay. And the general trend there, or the, the trade that, that people tend to make, is that when the volatility is high, uh, they tend to uh, expect uh, the, the volatility to fall. And when the volatility is low, they tend to expect the volatility to, to rise. So the higher the volatility, the higher the uh, price of an option. So the uh, basic idea is that when volatility spikes, uh, people tend to sell uh, options, uh, either put options or call options, in anticipation that volatility is going to fall down. Generally speaking, volatility is not a predictive, good predictive variable of future equity returns over a uh, two to five year period. So, so long term investing. Long term, it doesn't make a difference. What you should be doing is that if you see the VIX above where it is normally, you should probably not be buying put options to protect your portfolio uh, because you're overpaying for them at that point in time. Okay. And, and generally speaking, there there does appear to be this uh, mean mean reversion. So volatility is, is a little bit lower than it has been historically, and so people are anticipating a rise in volatility going forward. There'll be a rise in volatility, volatility will rise and fall. As a long-term investor, you want to ignore it. You certainly want to try and stay away from option trading as much as you can. Uh, the commissions and the bid-ask spreads are there are so high, it's very, very hard to make money. Right, right. Uh, Mitch, by the way, is the, I think I mentioned this before, portfolio manager, founding principal at Zach's Investment Management. If you'd like to contact a representative at Zach's Investment Management, you can call 800-249-2934. You can discuss managing your retirement assets. Or for more information, email ziminfo at zax.com. Also, uh, visit our website, zimwealth.com. Um, 
we were talking uh, during the break about millennials. Yes. Um, they, how what they look toward investing, and it's obviously an important thing to to put money away for your retirement, even if you are thirty years old. Correct. It it is because the, the longer the time you have of investing, the greater the effect of compounding. So that if you can generate a return of you know a, a return of seven percent, which is very reasonable for a, uh, you know, a 80 or 90 percent equity ex- exposure portfolio. Every 10 to 11 years, uh, 10 and a half years, you're going to double your assets. So if you're a millennial and and you're at 30, uh, when you're 40, you've doubled your assets. When you're 50, you've doubled your assets again. And when you're 60, you've doubled your assets again. So you've, you've gone from 100,000 to 200 to 400 to 800 thousand dollars. Now you're ready for retirement, effectively. So it's it essentially the with the uh, with with the equity market, it's the time in the market, and uh, the issue with millennials is that they're generally underweighted in equities. Of all the uh, demographic groups, they're the most underweighted in equities. Part of it comes from coming of age in 2008, and uh, that right, being, when the Great uh, Recession, the great recession happened, when the market came uh, uh, came under pressure, and they don't have you know the history uh, before that at their you know disposal or looming large in their mind. Uh, but generally speaking, you want to get money, get investments into the equity market, you want to try and keep it there for as long as you possibly can, and you want to try and not get shaken out uh, when you see the VIX index shoot up, as it always will, uh, because it always comes back down. Okay, so don't worry about the VIX. Don't uh, worry about the VIX, but this concept of a millennial uh, being able to invest and compound the returns over time. But it's a psychological issue. You have to be able to invest, and you have to then not take uh, distributions from that money or spend that money for a long period of time. For many millennials, uh, they start with uh, some amount of money. After 10 years, it's now double the size. They want to take that out and start consuming with it. Right. And you have to you have to fight against that urge uh, because if you just keep that money in the market, it will continue to grow over long periods of time. Okay, very good. But I think with employment going up among the millennial class, that's probably helping being able to put some money away. It is, but you, I mean, the, the negative is you're seeing new business uh, creation at, at relative lows. And again, that that is because uh, home ownership is at all-time lows, and mm-hmm. most people use mortgages as a means of uh, uh, starting their business. And the second thing is that the banks aren't lending. Uh, the, the bank wants to lend to Amazon. They want to lend to Walmart. Right. Uh, but they don't want to lend to the smaller business. Again, uh, so the increase in uh, in loan availability isn't filtering into the economy. And most of the new job creation that occurs in the economy comes from uh, new businesses. Right. Larger businesses, uh, Walmart will let people go, they will hire people, but they're not dramatically increasing the number of people that are working for them. Uh, whereas if someone starts a new business, they immediately, uh, assuming they get a good go at it, they're going to be hiring two to three, four, five people, and not, uh, and then there's going to be a net increase in jobs. So again, the lack of business creation is likely being caused, it could be being caused by regulatory changes that uh, limit the amount of lending uh, that's occurring, and it also could be being caused by low home ownership. That is, people have a lower amount of uh, ownership of their homes. They don't have the resources then to start businesses, and that's a that's a very big negative. That's one of the biggest negatives I see with the American economy going forward. But again, this is a negative for the economy. Right. It is not a negative if you're a uh, if you're an, if you're an investor. If you're an investor and you hold the uh, these companies, what the lack of new business creation means is there's less competition. Sure. So there's, there's, there's fewer uh, companies being created, 
there, there's fewer companies doing it, and the companies that are, are there are getting higher and higher profit margins. So we see profit margins of corporations higher than they've ever been because of the technological changes that are occurring and because of the lack of, of new business creation that has been occurring due to some regulatory changes that are occurring. For so it's becoming, it's, I mean, the, the, the negative is that the, the economy is becoming somewhat ossified over, over time, that the, these, these entrenched corporations, uh, regulations are changing to benefit them, new competition is, is being reduced, their profit margins are increasing. It's extremely good scenario if you're an equity owner of these corporations. Right. It is uh, not a great scenario if you're trying, if you're running around trying to, to find, uh, make money through labor activity. And so what's going to happen, I expect over time, is you're going to see people start to increase their exposure uh, to equities to take uh, advantage of this trend of these moats developing uh, amongst these companies more dramatically. Okay. Oh, very good. Uh, that's very, very uh, good food, food for thought. I also, uh, Mitch, you do a weekly column for Zach's Investment yeah. Management. It's called Mitch on the Markets, um, you know, appropriately enough. And the most recent article you wrote is called, Should You Be Shifting to Risk Assets? So um, in a world where economic and geopolitical uncertainties seem to rule the day, this is quoting you, investors are still favoring risk assets. Why is that? Risk assets right now are undervalued relative to riskless assets. So it, it, what, what you're either one of two things is happening. Either the risk assets are being under uh, underbought, the risk-free assets are being overbought, and it's one of those two things are happening. I think it's a little bit of both. I think people are underinvesting in risk assets at this point in time, and they're overinvesting in risk-free assets, and that trend is going to have to reverse itself until it does. Uh, equities and other risky assets are attractive uh, relative to the low interest rate environment. The low interest rate environment, it really is driving the valuation of the risk-free assets and it's making the risk assets very, very attractive. Now, now if interest rates start shooting up, uh, you're going to see risk assets uh, start to come under a little bit of pressure, but if they stay low like uh, the yield curve is predicting, uh, risky assets are, are, are going to remain attractive relative to risk-free assets. And we were talking, the, based on we're not expecting interest rates to rise until maybe the end of this year, you expect this to be ongoing then? It, it, you have to have the 10-year Treasury yield above the yield of the S&P 500. 10-year okay. Treasury yield is 1.5%, the dividend yield of the S&P 500 is 2%, you need the 10-year Treasury yield to go up above 2%, or you need the dividend yield of the S&P 500 to fall. So okay. the dividend yield of the S&P 500 falls uh, by having the price of stocks dramatically increase. The 10-year Treasury yield uh, uh, rises by having interest rates rise. You're going to have to have both of those things uh, occur basically at the same time to bring these things into equilibrium. Otherwise, corporations are going to continue to do what they're doing, which is just issue debt and buy back stock, driving up stock prices. So the corporations sitting there in the middle of this looking at what they have to pay on their debt. Uh, looking at the, what uh, what the earnings yield is on their equity, they're saying, well, it's a no-brainer. Let's go issue bonds and buy back stock. Mm -hmm. And if they do that continually, they're going to increase their earnings per share. And if the P multiple stays constant, their stock price is going to go up. So that trend is going to continue throughout all large cap companies in the United States until you start to get into more of an equilibrium uh, between the yield on bonds and the dividend yield or earnings yield on, on equities effect. Okay. Um, this is another quote from you from the should you be shifting to risk assets. 
One thing we've noticed this year so far is that investors are increasingly moving out of the risk curve to even riskier types of stocks, namely small caps. Now, you use the benchmark of the Russell 2000. Is it the Russell 2000 yeah, or just the, all the Russell? The Russell 2000 is the uh, small cap benchmark. Right, that's right. And so, uh, so how does this correlate? Again, it's this movement. It, it, it's all being driven by low interest rates. All right. It's not being driven by tremendous profit margin growth among small cap companies. All right. Uh, it is being driven by low interest rates. And the other thing that's happening is these smaller cap companies, uh, the, the larger cap companies have stopped their R&D development. So 30, 20, 30 years ago, there used to be a large portion of Xerox's uh, uh, you know, revenue that was devoted to R&D. And there's you know, tremendous innovations they made. Uh, AT&T invented the transistor. There, there, there's, these corporations were taking a large portion of their uh, revenue because they were sort of had monopolistic profitability, sure. and they were reinvesting it in trying to develop new technologies. That's no longer happening except with a few companies, and what companies are doing is they're relying on the smaller cap names and private equity names to provide their growth. So their thing is we're going to keep the profit margins very high, get the stock price as high as it can get, and then when we need to grow, we'll go out and we'll purchase these smaller cap companies. So, you know, Google's not going to be purchased. Apple's not going to be purchased. Microsoft's not going to be purchased. But amongst the small cap names, uh, you know, GE's not going to be acquired. Exxon's not going to be acquired. Right. Amongst the small cap names, as growth pressures start to come on the large cap names, they say, well, guys, uh, they, 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 uh, they open their eyes and say for the last 10 years, what we've been doing is issuing bonds to buy back stock. We need to organically grow our earnings. They're going to look around. They're going to try and find smaller cap names to acquire. So there's a consolidation occurring in the equity markets where the number of publicly traded equities is uh, decreasing over time as it becomes more and more consolidated as the profit margins start going to these larger names. Mm -hmm. But the pool that they're going to acquire from is the small and mid cap name. Uh, so as the, as growth starts to materialize, you're going to see small cap banks starting to be acquired, small cap retailers starting to be consolidated, uh, small cap consumer staple companies uh, starting to be acquired by the larger cap names. So instead of trying, instead of Procter & Gamble trying to reinvent soap, what they're going to do is they're going to go out there and they're going to try and find a new consumer staple company that is uh, getting some sort of resonance, is getting some sort of traction, and they're going to go out there and acquire it. So it's very reasonable uh, for small caps uh, to start performing well as the market starts to come up, even though from a valuation perspective, small caps are not as attractive as large cap stocks at this point in time. Okay, very good. And now when uh, a bigger company is going to purchase a smaller firm, um, they look to get, I mean, how much is the valuation in play there? And is it difficult to select small cap stocks with the idea that, yes, this looks like a good one with synergies with a big company uh, to be bought out, or is it just a little difficult to, to well, Mark, make it that way? The second part of that question is more interesting, is that it's the anomalies that we use on our investment management side, so that when we identify, uh, I'll start to talk about an anomaly that uh, value stocks over time will outperform growth stocks. So stocks at lower P multiples, uh, lower price to book multiples, if I take all the stocks and I group them by their price to book multiple, the groups of stocks in the lowest price to book multiple will generally outperform over long periods of time the group of stocks with the highest price to book. I mean, you're talking hundreds of stocks in each of these categories. These anomalies always persist and are stronger amongst smaller cap stocks than amongst larger cap stocks. Okay. So if I take all the companies in the Russell 1000 and I group them by price to book ratio, 
and I put, uh, let's say there's a thousand companies, and I put a hundred companies in each of 10 groups from lowest to highest price to book ratio. So okay. the, the uh, first fractal will have a hundred companies with the lowest price to book, and the top fractal of a hundred companies with the highest price to book. The differential between that is lower than if I go down in market cap and I look at the next 1,000 largest companies by market cap, and that's lower even if I go down another 1,000 in market cap, and I'm at about 3,000, it's about 4,000 equities, I go down another 1,000, it becomes even higher. So the, the spread that you get between value and growth becomes much more pronounced as you move into smaller cap stocks. So smaller cap stocks, the statistical anomalies that we have pioneered, earnings estimate revisions, uh, on the dividend strategy, we're looking at a distress risk phenomenon. All of these tend to work a little bit better amongst smaller cap stocks, but it's not just true with the anomalies we use, it's true with all the anomalies in the academic literature across the board. And the issue with this, the anomaly research is that uh, they're saying that, well, uh, the excess returns you get, for instance, from looking at and seeing that small cap stocks outperform large cap stocks really only becomes apparent when you look at the smallest of the small cap stocks. Okay. And so things like the January effect, uh, these anomalies that persist, they tend, to, uh, they, they tend to disappear when you're talking about large cap stocks. You have to talk about smaller cap stocks. So the excess returns due to statistical anomalies uh, that we tend to uh, use at Zacks tend to be more pronounced in smaller cap stocks than larger cap stocks. Well, just uh, as a, a matter of scale, it's tough for GE to double as, a, right. as opposed to a small cap stock. Right. It's also tough for GE to be massively mispriced, whereas a small cap stock has these all these frictions involved in who owns the stock, what information they have. Uh, so the smaller the company's stock, uh, generally speaking, the more responsive that company tends to be uh, to earnings estimate revisions. We spend a lot of time, uh, with me and a couple of researchers, have been looking at trying to determine whether uh, prices are going to respond to earnings estimate revisions. And what, what we very clearly show is that the uh, smaller cap the company, the greater the price response uh, to an earnings surprise and the greater the price response to an earnings estimate revision. When an analyst revises their earnings estimate down or, or up, mm -hmm. the greater the response uh, that occurs. Now, that's a main staple of Zach's investment management, the revision using, to the earnings estimate. Using earnings, we <clears throat> pioneered the concept of earnings estimate revisions. We created this concept of the quarterly earnings surprise. Uh, before we came around, companies were looking at how they were growing earnings year over year, and uh, they started to look at what the earnings are expected to be by the analysts and how those earnings expectations are trading over time. And that's basically what we do on the investment management side is that what we do is we create proprietary strategies and then we allocate across the strategies. So the allocation is customized uh, for each individual's risk level essentially. Very good. If you'd like to speak to Mitch Sachs on this program, you can call right in to 866 472 5790. Also, if you'd like to contact a representative at Zach's Investment Management, call 800-249-2934. You can discuss managing your retirement assets. Uh, you can also get more information by emailing us at ziminfo at zax.com. Also visit the website, which is zimwealth.com. Uh, we're going to take a break in just about one minute. Uh, let's see, uh, anything else? Um, should you be shifting to risk assets? Um, there were a few um, things I wanted to get to. No, I think that's, Mark, it's a good question. The basic idea leave it before we go to the break sure you want to try and have as much risk assets as you can psychologically bear no one after 30 years of being in the market 
comes back and says, well, I should have been, I, I should have been under allocated to equities. The belief is, well, you know, back in the 70s when everyone would, uh, was calling for the death of equities, I, I got shaken out. Back after 2008, I got uh, concerned about, uh, you know, Lehman Brothers, I got concerned about the stability of the financial system, and I substantially reduced equities. That Let's pick this up after the God, break, we'll we'll, after, but that we'll come right back. always been the wrong decision. Very good. Time. This is The Steady Investor. We'll be right back. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. The Steady Investor Show is brought to you by Zach's Investment Management, a wealth management boutique formed over 23 years ago and manages several billions of dollars for thousands of customers. At Zach's, we believe acting in your best interest is our obligation. Zach's focuses on providing solutions and listening to our clients' needs. With trust in the financial industry at an all-time low, we find this focus to be a key differentiator for our firm. We're based in Chicago and have a team of advisor representatives located across the country to help you with your retirement planning. Whether you need help with financial planning or looking for a second opinion on your retirement plan, give us a call at 800-245-2934. Or to learn more, go to ZimWealth.com. Again, that number is 800-245-2934 or go to ZimWealth.com. Fast performance is no guarantee of future results. Potential for loss exists in any investment. Material is for informational purposes only. It is not investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice. A recommendation to buy, sell, or hold a security. No advice is given about a strategy's suitability for a particular investor. Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business. listening to The Steady Investor. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to cgaitan at zax.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to The Steady Investor here on Voice America's Business Channel. Uh, this is Mark Vickery, joined by Mitch Zacks, the Portfolio Manager and Founding Principal at Zacks Investment Management. Uh, Mitch, we've been talking about your article, your weekly article called Mitch on the Markets, which you can get that, by the way, at the Zim website. Is that correct? I, Zim I, I, I certainly com. hope so, yes. <laughs> I would imagine. And uh, there's one thing I wanted to talk about from that article uh, that I found very interesting, and okay. that is, uh, this is quoting you again, uh, it is not too surprising to see small caps, small cap stocks outperform as part of a cyclical changing of the guard. But you think that there's more to the story than that. Um, there's four different uh, additional forces you see at work. Um, can we go over those, you think? Sure. If we take a look at what's going on, that you're, one very large thing that we're seeing happening is you're seeing capital inflows to the United States. And so, again, we, we've mentioned this before. The U.S. economy, the U.S. market is sort of the best house on a bad block, so to speak. So if you put yourself in the shoes of a you know someone in Europe uh, looking at Brexit and saying mm -hmm. where do you want to put your assets you don't come to the conclusion hey I want them in euros you come to the conclusion hey I want them in dollars right if you're someone in China and you're looking around and you're, you're you know your manufacturing plants are doing well and you're looking around the rest of the country and you see the slowdown occurring 
again, you're saying, I want to get my money into dollars. And if you're someone in uh, Saudi Arabia looking at the issues that are occurring uh, in terms of lower oil prices, right. lower oil revenue, again, it's, I want to put my dollar, I want to put my assets into dollars. So any source of wealth uh, from an individual or an institution across the world is going to be wanting to put that wealth into dollars. And so as the demand for dollars increases, you're going to see the U.S. dollar uh, start to uh, start to continue to uh, you know come up, uh, appreciate a little bit, and that's going to put some downward pressure on U.S. Uh, multinational earnings. Hmm. So that's again, right. as the dollar increases, it becomes harder uh, for Coca-Cola to sell Coca-Cola overseas. Their Coke is uh, the, the Coca-Cola that they're selling is now more expensive. The smaller cap names tend to benefit from a lower dollar. Uh, from a higher dollar because right. they're they're buying things overseas and they're selling them in the U.S. I see. And so what what, what tends to happen is a stronger dollar uh, more negatively affects multinational corporations than it does smaller cap companies. And if you expect the dollar to appreciate, you want to be overweighting smaller caps relative to larger caps generally over time. Right, and this this uh, filters in nicely with should you be shifting to risk assets. Um, also, no yields in bond and dividend stocks are expensive. No yields in bonds and dividend stocks are expensive. Dividend stocks, uh, especially the utility sector. Right. If you look at the, uh, essentially, there's if there's overvaluation in the global marketplace right now, it's in bond land and it's in equity land as you get closer to bond land. So, if, for instance, in our large cap value strategy, our dividend strategy, our bond, the, the dividend yield is not substantially higher uh, than the uh, than the Russell 1000 value. It might be like 60 or 70 basis points above the, the Russell 1000 value. Mm -hmm. uh, so the Russell 1000 value might be at like 2.5%. We might be at around 3.2, uh, 3.3%. You're, you're not going far out. As you go higher and higher into dividend yields, the stocks start to behave more and more like bonds and are more and more overvalued. I think the utility sector right now is substantially, I shouldn't say substantially, but is significantly overvalued relative to other sectors uh, because of the movement and the, the demand for yield. And there tends to be a general uh, demand for yield. Uh, larger cap stocks tend to have higher dividend yields than smaller cap stocks. Sure. So relative valuation. Uh, is starting to buy smaller cap stocks again uh, because the larger cap stocks yields have been bid up a little bit higher effectively. Right, and this is the, all about that flee to safety, the safe stocks the to safety. And, and, and dividend the, yields. Right. And, that. and the third thing you're seeing is you're, you're looking for uh, future earnings growth. And as you start to see future earnings growth, you're going to see that benefit smaller cap stocks a little bit more uh, than larger cap stocks. Okay. And then the fourth thing is that you, you do see negative sentiment. And that negative sentiment affects riskier assets more. So the more you go out on the risk spectrum, mm -hmm. the more it is affected by negative sentiment. So if you take the, uh, in the large cap space, if you take the technology uh, space, the larger tech companies' P multiples are probably a little bit lower uh, than where they should be given uh, where we are in the economic cycle because of pessimism amongst investors. And again, that's because the majority of the earnings growth from a large cap tech name is, is coming in the future. Same thing with the smaller cap stock. Uh, the majority of the earnings growth, the dividends that that small cap stock is eventually going to pay is uh, many years out into the future. So that's more affected by negative sentiment. 
all of this, as you have a reduction in negative sentiment, as you start to expect uh, you know, greater earnings growth, as you start to see sort of dividend high, super high dividend yielding stocks becoming more expensive, as you start to see the U.S. dollar start to appreciate, all of this points towards uh, sort of the increase in smaller cap stocks relative to larger cap stocks. All right. So and because it, it it points towards more risk. And right. When you start when people start taking more risk, they're going to be start buying more of smaller cap, higher volatile stocks. They're going to be more interested in sectors of the larger cap stocks, such as technology, where there's more risk. So from a strategic standpoint, what I anticipate to happen is this movement will continue to uh, occur. It might even accelerate away from risk-free assets towards risky assets. Mm -hmm. And the uh, risky assets is a term that just means the less that the dividend is uh, completely stable over time. Because again, the risk-free assets at this point in time are overvalued, mm -hmm. and the risky assets at this point of time are undervalued. And it's a reflection of the sentiment. It's a, it's a reflection of of uh, of the concerns people have in terms of global economic growth. That's very good. That's very good. Uh, to contact a representative at Zach's Investment Management, call 800-249-2934. You can discuss managing your retirement assets. You can also get more information from uh, emailing us at ziminfo at zax.com. Also visit us at zimwealth.com. Uh, Mitch, uh, also there's a stock market outlook that's provided every month by John Blank, who was yeah. a, a chief strategist for Zach's Investment Management. Uh, I just wanted to run through a few things that he was bringing up um, and just kind of get your take on it, if we can do that, just for the remaining sure. few John, minutes. John's a capable guy. I mean, he's got a PhD from Massachusetts, from MIT. Uh, he's been an economist for quite some time. Right. Um, and he doesn't agree all the time with what I'm looking at, uh, but he does have some very good points. And it's, it's very much worth reviewing what he has to say. He's been a guest on The Steady Investor as yep. well. Okay, so he's saying, and this is something we all know, the USA economy has been growing slowly this year. Federal government recently shared that the U.S. produced a miserly Q2 increase of 1.2% in real GDP. This is not a concern, though, uh, going forward, or would you say that it is? No, it's a benefit to U.S. equities because... The low GDP growth rate keeps interest rates low, which keeps asset prices higher. If that GDP growth rate was double, uh, stocks would not be hitting uh, all-time highs. Okay, okay, so if you take the same earnings growth that you're seeing in the stock market and you combine it with uh, stronger GDP growth, maybe the earnings growth increases a little bit. Uh, you know, for one to two percent, it's not going to be a massive increase in earnings growth. Uh, but more importantly, the Federal Reserve is going to be raising rates uh, much quicker. So again, you're in this scenario where every, there's deflationary pressure throughout the world. The world has become interlinked. The U.S. can't decouple from the world. It still has this deflationary pressure, and as a result, uh, you're, you're not seeing interest rates rise. Right, and right. And you're, you're not seeing prices go up. And all of this is very, very positive uh, for stocks because the profit margins on equities remains relatively high effect. And here's one thing that he said that I know you agree with. Right. The Fed cannot and does not want to raise interest rates until growth picks up. Yes. That's it, kind it, of a note. They, they are, they're completely uh, – their biggest concern is uh, reacting too soon rather than too late. The general belief at the Federal Reserve is that if you let things heat up for too long a period of time, you can just raise rates at a little bit faster rate. You can always step on the brake, they believe. And, and there is a little bit of hubris here that is just – is somewhat concerning that they think, well, we can uh, manage this economy 
uh, through changing short-term interest rates and uh, engaging in quantitative easing, and there, there there's no limit to their level of uh, quantitative easing they can engage in. And so my guess is that every central bank in the world has the same belief, and they're all engaging in the same activity at the same point in time, and it's becoming less and less effective. So there is some concern about what's going to happen when this all starts to unwind a little bit. Uh, but generally speaking, the Federal Reserve is not going to raise rates until they start seeing the market, uh, the economy start to heat up, and they start seeing the jobs numbers consistently be higher. And even then, they want to wait for a while to try and get more jobs for people. Right. And here's a, a, a comment that he made in the recent stock market outlook that really kind of speaks to your should you be shifting to risk assets uh, article from last week. Um, at risk taking forced upon U.S. investors in today's yield starved financial markets is unprecedented in recent decades. Would you agree with that? I, I would say that the, I, I wouldn't say that it's, it, usually when you see risk seeking behavior, it is not motivated uh, by the fact that the opportunity caught the alternative to taking risk is is, uh, is is so bad effectively. So usually when people are taking risks in the equity markets that I remember and I, I can I, I can talk about is when they're very concerned, they, they think the equity markets are going to the moon and they want to be along and uh, participate in that. Okay. In this instance, they're being clawed away from the risk-free assets and that means that th that can continue to go on for a while. You're not anywhere near the level of euphoria about the market that you would see near a market top. You don't see people embracing equities. You don't see pension funds saying we're getting rid of hedge funds and we're going to invest in equities. You see them saying we're getting rid of hedge funds and we're going to try and do something else besides invest in equities. Right. So again, there, there's a general distaste uh, amongst investors uh, for equities, primarily because of the large psychological effect of 2008. And that tells me equities most likely have a further uh, have a further way to run effectively. Okay. Now, that's the lousiest start for stocks in a new year, in 2016, I'm saying. And it's now, on record, uh, reversed into a five-month bull run. Uh, you can expect this to continue uh, through the end of the year or just it, it, it's, slow instead? The market continues to climb a wall of worry. It continues to surprise people to the upside. Uh, the reason it can surprise people to the upside is because sentiment is so negative. So at the beginning of the year, the expectation for the market was very muted, and it's surprised to the upside. And you're going to continue to have this because what's driving all of this is the lower interest rate environment and the attractiveness of equities relative to debt uh, because of the uh, low interest rates uh, right now uh, globally. Okay. Final question, Mitch. Given uh, a 5%, this is John Blank talking yeah. in the stock market outlook, given a 5% chance of a U.S. recession, agree or disagree? I think I think you always have a higher than five percent chance. I, I don't want to disagree with John Blank. Uh, I, I think there is a chance. The issue is again, if the recession hits while the Federal Reserve is raising rates, that will be very negative for the market. I don't think we're going we're going to see that. I, I think that the, you're going to see an economic recovery, and I again continue to believe the market is going to surprise uh, to the upside. I think the overinvestment in the hedge fund arena ends with the market uh, substantially outperforming hedge funds uh, for some uh, for some additional period of time. Well, I was going to ask you how long is that? Through the end of the year, through 2017, two to five years? It's got to get to the point where the interest amongst investors for hedge funds of this concept of I want to make returns, but I must protect to the downside uh, starts to wane. There's, there's too much, uh, there are too many resources being forced on a 
uh, activity, which is a zero-sum activity. If some, if someone, if one hedge fund wins trading this uh, uh, this financial instrument, the other hedge fund loses. The equity markets, it's not a zero-sum game, and if you can invest and stay invested over long periods of time, you can do very well. Great, Mitch Zacks. This is uh, the Steady Investor, and thank you very much, Mitch, for being here. We'll be back next week. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in this week. Be sure to join Mitch Zacks and Mark Vickery for another edition of The Steady Investor next Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you haven't started your retirement plan yet, what are you waiting for? 